Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Welcome to Parcast Crime Bites. We wanted to give our listeners some additional content to help them dive even deeper into the true crime world. Every week, in addition to your normal Crimes of Passion episode, we're exploring the most fascinating true crime themes covered across the Parcast Network. We've collected short clips from some of our most popular Parcast originals to help us explore ideas like motivation, method, and madness, and show how interconnected the true crime world really is. You can find the original episodes for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. A list of episodes that we used will be posted in the episode description. Today, we're discussing crimes that involve wealthy victims. What crimes predominantly affect the wealthy, and why? Though we might assume wealthy people are targets for robbery, the Bureau of Justice Statistics actually found that the poor are more likely to be victimized by robbers. Researcher Fabio Augusto Reis Gomez believes this discrepancy can be explained by expensive security measures. The wealthy can afford armed bodyguards, armored cars, and expensive home security, while the poor cannot. Additionally, lower-income neighborhoods experience the highest amounts of property crime. Therefore, people living in low-income areas have a higher chance of being victimized. The rich are also less likely to become victims of violent crimes such as assault or murder. Americans who earn less than $10,000 per year are 206 times more likely to experience violent crime than those who make $75,000 or more. So when a wealthy person does become the victim of a crime, such as an unexplained disappearance, a con artist scheme, or a murder, the public becomes fascinated with the story. Today's episode will explore the different types of crimes we've seen perpetrated against the wealthy. We'll start with a clip from an episode of Gone, covering a member of one of the wealthiest American families in history, the Rockefellers. Michael Rockefeller was the fifth child of former U.S. Vice President Nelson Rockefeller. The Rockefellers primarily made their fortune in the petroleum business, but they also held power in real estate, banking, and politics. In 1961, Michael Rockefeller and Dutch anthropologist René Vossing were on an expedition in Netherlands, New Guinea. They studied the Osmot tribe, taking photographs and collecting art. One day, their boat capsized. Michael and René clung to the overturned ship and hoped their local guides would bring them help but the current was pushing them to sea. So Michael attempted to swim to shore, but that was the last anyone ever saw of Michael Rockefeller. Years later, after Macklin's death, a documentary film crew reviewed the Azmat footage the cameraman had shot. In one of the shots of a flotilla of Azmat canoes, with hundreds of Azmat warriors chanting and rowing down a river, a white man can clearly be spotted among them. He's dressed as an Osmot, or not dressed as the case may be, with blondish hair and a beard, chanting and rowing along with the rest. Was this Michael Rockefeller? What if Michael had chosen to leave behind the privileged life of a Rockefeller and drop off the map? 
Working in New York City real estate or banking was certainly far less adventurous than living with the Osmot. This rumor floated around for some time after his disappearance. After all, it was the 1960s, and Michael wasn't the only rich white kid to rebel from his parents or even to move to an isolated culture far from the West. It also made sense in light of his parents' very public and painful divorce and his love of Osmot culture. But does it make sense when we consider who Michael was? He had big plans for his future as an art collector, photographer, and an expert on Osmot art. He'd written about them just days before in his journal and letters. And as much as he loved Osmot art, he wasn't particularly connected to the culture. He found the work beautiful and the craftsmen skilled, but he never learned the language and seemed to have little understanding of the deep spiritual and cultural meanings of each of the pieces he was purchasing. He never spent more than a couple days in any given town and didn't seem to have built any meaningful relationships with Osmots. All of which makes it seem unlikely that he would voluntarily cast off his future as a cultural luminary in favor of a life as a villager, either in Osmot or elsewhere in the region. In fact, after his investigation, Milt Macklin didn't think Michael Rockefeller was still living in Melanesia either, voluntarily or not. No, after he tracked down and interviewed Father Von Pey, one of the Dutch missionaries who'd known Michael in Osmot, Macklin had a much different conclusion about what had happened to Michael. Because as far as Von Pey was concerned, there was no doubt whatsoever that Michael had died in November 1961. His Osmot sources had told him so. Which brings us to our final theory. A theory that first cropped up within months of Michael's disappearance, first among people in Osmot and then in international newspapers. A theory that would never go away, despite the Rockefeller family and the Dutch government insisting otherwise. A theory that suggests that Michael made it to shore where he was captured and eaten by cannibals. In that clip from Gone, we heard a couple of theories as to why Michael Rockefeller disappeared. Despite the theories, the Rockefeller family and the Dutch government officially concluded that Michael drowned before he was able to make it to shore. In 2014, author Carl Hoffman traveled to the Osmot region to investigate the disappearance. He heard from locals that Osmot men from the Ochenep village had seen Michael in the water, killed him, and cannibalized him. According to the conspiracy theory, this is where Michael's wealth and fame worked against him. The Dutch government did not want to be associated with a high-profile story of savagery and cannibalism. So, they covered up the real story. The next clip, taken from Parcast original Hostage, explores another descendant of a powerful and wealthy American family, John Paul Getty III. John Paul Getty III, who went by Paul, was the grandson of J. Paul Getty, an American oil tycoon who was once considered the richest man in the world. On July 10, 1973, 16-year-old Paul was partying in Rome when he was kidnapped and held for ransom by Indrangheta, a mafia organization based in Calabria, Italy. For three months, the Indrangheta demanded that Paul's wealthy family pay a $17 million ransom for Paul's safe return. But Paul's father and grandfather refused. 
as they feared other members of the family would be taken ransom if they paid. Stuck at an impasse, the Indrangheta decided to raise the stakes. By the morning of October 21st, 1973, 16-year-old J. Paul Getty III had been held captive by the Calabrian Indrangheta in the rugged mountains of southern Italy for more than three months. His father and grandfather had both publicly refused to pay the ransom. To make matters worse, almost the entirety of Italy, including the police, believed that the kidnapping had been staged by the teenager to get money from his family. The kidnappers had had enough. The men guarding Paul told him that his mother had insulted them by suggesting they weren't trustworthy. They would have to follow through on their threats to get the ransom. By that point, Paul had developed a certain amount of sympathy for some of his guards, and he understood their perspective. He realized that it might take something drastic to make his family take the kidnapping seriously and pay up. One morning, the guards trimmed the hair around his right ear and cleaned the skin with alcohol. Paul realized he was about to lose his ear. He felt nauseous and began to shiver with anxiety. He spent the whole day waiting for the inevitable. The next morning, the men woke him and started to cook steak. Paul ate as much as he could. His body would be losing a lot of iron. After he'd had a chance to digest, they sat him down on a chopping block and adjusted his blindfold. They gave him a handkerchief to bite on and held down his arms and legs. And then one of them put a razor to his right ear and sliced it off in one go. The pain didn't hit immediately. The men cleaned the wound, bandaged Paul up, gave him penicillin and tetanus shots, and laid him down on his bed, just as the pain and the bleeding started. Paul bled nonstop for at least three days. He was hemorrhaging from the blood vessels around his missing ear and was too weak to move. He vomited constantly and screamed in agony. The guards began to panic. They had no idea what to do. They couldn't let him die. They tried to get him to walk around, to keep his body working, but he could barely stand. All he could do was lie uselessly in bed. After 10 days of this, the guards began to worry they'd been in one place too long and decided they had to move their hostage regardless of his weakness. In the meantime, the men in charge tried to preserve the ear in formaldehyde and put it in a plastic bag, along with a lock of Paul's hair. They packaged it all up and dropped it in the mail. Now everyone would finally believe that Paul was in danger and the Gettys would pay. After the events in that clip from Hostage, Paul's grandfather agreed to pay $2.2 million in ransom. Shortly after the money was delivered, Paul was found alive at a gas station on December 15, 1973. The kidnapping severely impacted Paul's life. His kidnappers supplied him with large amounts of brandy to numb the pain from the removal of his ear. What began as pain relief soon turned into a drug and alcohol addiction. 
Paul's bad habits culminated in an overdose in 1981, which rendered him quadriplegic and partially blind. Yet the most shocking part of Paul's kidnapping was his grandfather's response. At the time of the kidnapping, J. Paul Getty Sr. made enough money per day to pay the initial ransom, but he refused. To him, the ransom was pennies, but he valued those pennies more than his own grandson. After all, he was notoriously cheap. He had even installed a coin-operated telephone in his home for guests to use. His miserly behavior only made the story that much more enticing for the public. While Paul Getty and Michael Rockefeller were both descendants of wealthy families, our next victim was a self-made millionaire who either suffered from an accidental fall or murder. Coming up, we discuss the mysterious death of Alfred Lowenstein. This episode is brought to you by Rakuten. Are you ready to shop? Rakuten's Big Give Week is back. Get 15% cash back at hundreds of stores, including headliners, Ulta, Ray-Ban, and Canon. Rakuten is how in-the-know shoppers get the best savings. They shop the brands they love and earn cash back on top of deals during Big Give Week, May 6th to May 13th. The cash back rates are even bigger. I'll be shopping for Adidas and Fenty. You can save on everything you need for summer, like clothing, outdoor gear, and travel. Join today for free and get an extra 10% cash back boost. That's an extra 10% cash back on top of Big Give Week's 15% cash back. You won't see higher cash back rates than these. Go to Rakuten.com or download the Rakuten app. R-A-K-U-T-E-N. Shoppers get it. Now back to the story. So far, we've talked about crimes against men who come from generations of wealth. But our next clip from Unexplained Mysteries covers the still unsolved death of self-made millionaire Alfred Lowenstein. He gathered his fortune by investing in electric power and artificial silk. At the time of his death, Alfred was the third richest man in the world. On July 4, 1928, Alfred rode from Croydon to Brussels on his private aircraft, accompanied by the pilot, co-pilot, and four of his employees. At 4,000 feet in the air, Alfred stood up and announced he was headed to the restroom. Alfred was flying as a passenger in his new Fokker F7A 3M monoplane on July 4, 1928. He and four of his trusted assistants were on their way from Croydon Airport in London to Brussels. The trip began at 6 p.m. and was expected to last a few hours, but it never reached its destination. About an hour into the flight, the plane was cruising over the English Channel. Alfred entered the restroom cabin at the back of the plane. He was gone for 10 minutes before his personal secretary checked on him. His secretary broke the door open to find that Alfred was gone. In just over 10 minutes, the third richest man in the world had vanished. He would never be seen alive again. The official explanation for this sudden disappearance was that Lowenstein fell out of the aircraft accidentally. There was a second door in this monoplane leading from the bathroom cabin outside. The four assistants and two pilots on board assumed that is how he died. But as we covered last week, 
It would be impossible for one person to open the door while the plane was mid-flight. The passenger would have to single-handedly push against a 225-horsepower engine and a slipstream of 110 knots. Airline officials tried to recreate Alfred's accident, but they were unable to do so. It took several men working in unison to open the door of the plane. If the employees said that Alfred had fallen out of the plane by accident, one of them was lying. One of them was a murderer. That clip from Unexplained Mysteries offered speculation on how Alfred Lowenstein could have disappeared from the plane. But in truth, we still have no clear idea. Fifteen days after his disappearance, Alfred's body was found in the water. Even 90 years after his death, theories still linger on the mysterious death. Some speculate Lowenstein's wife, Madeline, orchestrated the murder so she could inherit Alfred's fortune. Alfred and Madeline were notoriously cold toward one another, sleeping in separate beds and eating their meals in different rooms. It's possible Madeline wanted him out of the picture while still retaining his wealth. Alfred also had a long-standing business rivalry with another silk investor, Henry Dreyfus. Some speculate that Dreyfus bribed the employees on the plane to murder Alfred. Sadly, we may never know the truth. So far, we've primarily covered the wealthy victims of crime, but our next clip delves into the psyche of those criminals who specifically target the wealthy. Our final clip comes from an episode of Con Artists. Jeanne de Lamotte was poor from birth, but her shaky claim of royal blood allowed her status to rub elbows with the wealthy in the 1770s and 80s. Eventually, Jeanne targeted two wealthy royal victims, Cardinal Prince Louis de Rouen and the queen herself, Marie Antoinette. In 1785, 29-year-old Jeanne de Lamotte and her husband, Nicolas, pulled off an incredible feat. Through a series of forged letters, the pair duped 51-year-old Cardinal Prince Louis de Rohan into believing he had developed a relationship with Queen Marie Antoinette. They even arranged an in-person meeting between Rohan and the Queen to fully sell the con. Jeanne and Nicolas hired a sex worker to pose as Marie Antoinette under the cover of darkness. Rowan met the imposter in a Versailles garden. She handed him another forged letter and slipped away into the night. Now, they had to test just how well their ploy had worked. In the next forged letter, the Delamotes asked Rowan for 60,000 livres, around $700,000 today. As before, they framed the request as being directly from the Queen, making up an excuse as to why she needed the money, when really, it was to maintain their own luxurious lifestyle. Rohan fell for it. He gladly took out a loan and produced the money. With Rohan firmly in their clutches, the Dullamuts set their sights on a much bigger scam. For the past year, Jeanne had taken great pains to make it seem like she had a close, personal relationship to the Queen. After Marie Antoinette turned them down, royal jewelers Charles Beaumaire and Paul Bassange 
were still desperate to convince the Queen to buy their 2,800-carat diamond necklace. In December of 1784, they went to Jeanne for help. They had heard the rumors that she was a royal confidant. Could she put in a good word for them? Jeanne played coy. Perhaps she could. They begged and even offered her a finder's fee. But she said she couldn't possibly accept. That was small potatoes anyway. She had her eye on a much grander prize. On January 5, 1785, Jeanne delivered another forged letter from the Queen to Rohan. The note was dramatic, swearing Rohan to absolute secrecy, impressing upon him the importance of what he was about to read. She confided to Rohan that she actually did want to purchase Beaumaire and Bassange's extravagant necklace, but didn't want to negotiate with the jewelers in person. To avoid any criticism, the Queen's extravagance and debts were well known, she wanted to keep this purchase under wraps until she had fully paid it off. Therefore, would Rowan purchase the necklace on the Queen's behalf? He considered this request carefully. On the one hand, he was already deeply in debt. Rowan himself was a spendthrift and lived beyond his means. And from the Queen's letter, it seemed he was expected to front the money for the necklace for an indefinite period of time. But, on the other hand, he reasoned that Marie Antoinette would be very grateful if he did her this favor. Rohan desperately wanted a promotion to Prime Minister, and he could only achieve this with the Queen's approval. Gaining her favor through the purchase of the necklace could help him rise through the ranks. In his reply, Rowan agreed to purchase the necklace on the Queen's behalf. He met with the jewelers and worked out a deal. Through Rowan, the Queen would pay four installments of 400,000 livres every six months. Because they had no other offers and were desperate to sell, the jewelers were forced to accept this payment schedule. Rowan gave them the first installment and dutifully brought home the necklace for his queen. After the events in that clip from con artists, Jeanne's scheme was eventually discovered, and she and her husband were arrested. But the damage had been done. The queen's reputation took a hit after the diamond necklace affair, and the growing resentment toward the monarchy was a catalyst for the French Revolution. As for Cardinal Prince Louis de Rohan, he was arrested for his part in the scheme, but was acquitted because he had unknowingly taken part in a con. Today's clips showed a variety of different crimes wealthy victims have become victims of, from a cardinal prince being swindled out of money to the possible murder of the third richest man in the world. Each was targeted because of their wealth and public presence. While wealthy people are statistically less likely to be the victims of crime, sometimes their wealth only makes them a greater target.
Thanks for tuning into Parcast Crime Bites. We hope you enjoyed this episode on crimes that target the wealthy. We'll be back next week with a new episode on cannibals and vampires. We'll be talking about strange cases of drinking blood and eating flesh, and how someone may become a cannibal or vampire. If you'd like to listen to the episodes we discussed today in full, simply search for our ParCast original shows, Gone, Hostage, Unexplained Mysteries, or Con Artists on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast originals for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. I'll see you next time.